It's one minute after 12, so good afternoon, everyone, everyone in the room and those watching remotely. On behalf of the Cancer Biology and Therapeutics Program, I'm excited to introduce today's speaker, Mike Cole. Um, many of you, or most of you, know him, so I will give some details that you may not know. Uh, he got a PhD in physics uh, at Johns Hopkins, indeed, his first postdoc there. Then he rose through the ranks at Princeton, becoming a full professor in 1995. Then as a peak of his career, he came to Dartmouth in, 19, in 2003, and then the Department of Farm Talks, and now MSB. And he started his research career uh, studying turtles, and his first three <laughs> papers are on turtles research. Uh, and then in the very early, so in 1982, he kind of moved into uh, cancer research in the then kind of emerging field of oncogenes uh, with uh, several seminal papers on the MIC oncogene in 82, 84, and you can just feel humbled by seeing papers in cell, nature, cell, cell, nature, nature. So it was it's very impressive. And, um, Mick turned out to be a very difficult target, as you'll hear from Mike, but his work is really a, a, a gives us a ample reason to feel optimistic. So I have several kind of mandatory statements. Um, Mike does not have any financial interests to disclose. He does not intend to discuss off-label use or investigational use of products, and he's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity. For CME credits, you should use the activity code that's outside, but please do it after the presentation. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm competing with a job candidate in biology and MSB, so I appreciate you taking your time uh, to listen to me instead. Um, yeah, so I started working on Mick in the very early days, and uh, I thought I would uh, start um, my presentation with this uh, paper. Uh, it was my first paper on Mick, and as uh, Constantine mentioned, 1982. Um, I was a second-year assistant professor, and um, we just stumbled onto this uh, story, which was that uh, – it's not working very well – but anyway, that immunoglobulin genes are translocated to the MIC gene in these mouse plasmacytomas, which is similar to Burkitt's lymphoma and multiple myeloma. And we put this together uh, in a very short time, got it submitted. And then we're overwhelmed by several other very prominent labs doing the same thing. But I still say our paper was the first one submitted, and so it's good. Um, and But what's, what's interesting that I don't think I've ever told anybody is that very soon after this paper came out, I, I had the pleasure to meet uh, Mike Bishop, uh, who won the Nobel Prize for his discovery of oncogenes in 1996, I think. And we were sitting in my then windowless uh, lab in St. Louis University, and and we were chatting, and he liked the paper, of course, and, and he says, Mick is the prize, right? That's his quote. 
And, and I thought, what do you mean by that? And I don't think he knew what he meant by that because, but Nick has been jumping in everybody's face ever since. And, and I figured, well, if Mike Bishop thinks that, then I ought to be able to study this for a while. And, and that was um, 37 years ago. Uh, so Mick is a problem in cancer. And Jay Bradner gave a talk here a while ago, and he has a slide that says the Mick problem, right? Why is Mick a problem? It, um, if what we know is that if you inactivate Mick in almost any cancer uh, type, you can basically cure the cancer, make the tumor cells stop growing. And uh, at the genetic level, 10% of all cancers have amplification of NIC, physical amplification of the NIC gene. It's the most frequently amplified gene in all, in all of cancer. And 70% of human tumors are estimated to overexpress NIC, mainly from upstream signaling pathways. So this is a really big problem, and nobody to this day, and I'll come to this in the last part of the talk, has a drug that targets MYC specifically. Um, and uh, so here's a the classic uh, slide from, from uh, Hanahan and, and Weinberg showing all the hallmarks of cancer on the, uh, on the left side and all the different attempts at therapeutics. Uh, you'll see no therapeutic attempt to say targeting MYC. Uh, and then here are all the hallmarks of NIC, so to speak, and you can see that many, many of these same pathways that are targeted by, uh, by various uh, drugs uh, are, are also components of what NIC can do to cells between uh, mediating signal transduction, a major component of transcription, controlling metabolism, cell cycle, and everything else. So that's why MYC is really prominent. It can basically do anything. And, and I've often said to people, you know, if you ever want to put a gene into, into a cell and have it do what you want it to do, choose MYC. It'll work. And I think we've shown that over the years. So before I come back to MYC uh, itself, I want to just talk about two other projects in the lab that, we've, that have come out of uh, thesis work for two graduate students. And, and these uh, are CRISPR-related, some of them MYC-related, and some of them not so MYC-related. And so all of you have heard about CRISPR. This is just a schematic and how you can use CRISPR to both in disrupt genes and also edit genes. And I'll show you an example of using it for each of those purposes. And the two parts of this are, first of all, the, the uh, thesis uh, by Liz Sergison, who worked on tumor suppressors using CRISPR, and the second is Nadia Kumbal, who also worked with uh, CRISPR library to study uh, MYC regulation. So we'll gradually, gradually move toward, uh, toward MYC. So what is a CRISPR library? So this is the, the first one that was published, was published by Zhang's lab in, uh, Zhang's lab in uh, at the Broad, and basically they made CRISPRs that target every single gene in the genome, a roughly six-fold redundancy, and you can pool these and you can treat cells and look for whatever phenotype you're, you're interested in. So what Liz wanted to do is to ask the question, if you treat a normal cell with CRISPR, can you find specific targeted genes which can uh, cause the cells to grow in soft auger? And soft auger growth is basically a surrogate, a cheap, you know, in vitro surrogate for tumor formation in mice. Most of the time, if you get soft auger colonies, you can also get uh, tumors. 
And so um, if you, uh, so this is how it works. You plate single cells in agar, and if they grow the, into these spheres, you know that you actually have Anchorage-independent growth. Most of the time, cells require attachment to plastic to grow. And so just to validate that the cell line we worked with, we used with MCF10A, which is a, quote, normal mammary epithelial line. And if you put NIC into it, overexpress it, like happens in many breast cancers, you get increased in soft auger growth here. Or if you knock out a bona fide tumor suppressor that's, that's relevant to breast cancer, uh, the P10 gene, you also get soft auger growth. So these cells respond to genetic insults or genetic manipulation in the way that breast cancer cells basically do. And so um, what Liz did was to take that, uh, that CRISPR library, uh, infect MCF10A cells, uh, select for cells that had acquired the, uh, the, the CRISPR, and then plate them, in one case just maintain them in culture, and in the other case put them into soft auger and ask the question, how many of the cells can grow in soft auger? And then she laboriously physically plucked the individual soft auger colonies out of these soft auger plates and then expanded those and rescued the, um, the, the guide RNAs and asked the question, what guide RNAs might be enriched in this, um, in this uh, population of soft auger? So, just to make a long story short, she got a short list of genes that we thought were promising. And among them uh, are, is SOX7, which is a published tumor suppressor in, uh, in breast cancer. Prune2, another tumor suppressor that's published. Uh, and, and some of the other ones which have less um, uh, literature on them. So in order to ver verify that, that these were in fact real, uh, she set up the same soft auger colony. And so the controls are on the left side here. Here's Nick causing soft auger growth. Here's P10 causing soft auger growth. And so SOX7, it's a bona fide tumor suppressor in the literature. And sure enough, at least one of the CRISPRs that she made, by the way, these are now new different CRISPRs than the ones that were in the original library. And so this one works. This one, for some reason, doesn't. And it's just the luck of the draw. Sometimes CRISPRs are not very effective. Uh, you can see prune 2, definitely statistically significant amount of soft auger growth. And then the one that we got that we were puzzled by is something called SUMF1. We'd never, you know, the, one of the classic things about any kind of genetic screen is you get what you screen for, whether you want it or not. And so we got SUMF1, and we said, what the hell is SUMF1? What is this pathway? And, um, but we got very reliable uh, CRISPR hits that gave consistent soft auger growth. So what is SUMF1? SUMF1 is a master regulator of the entire sulfatase pathway. So SUMF1 is an enzyme that takes a, a cysteine residue in the active site of all the sulfatases, and I'll show you the list in a second, and converts this, this, this cysteine to a formal glycine. And that is actually the catalytic residue for the sulfatase enzyme family. And so some F1, if you lose some F1, all the sulfatases are dead in the cell or in, in an individual. So it's a very potent master regulator of the entire pathway. And um, 
So there's a whole collection, I, I forget the numbers, like 16 different sulfatases. All of them are dependent on some F1 for their activity. And they have all kinds of different locations, some lysosomal, some in the ER, some on the cell surface, and some of them are really unknown in function. Uh, but how they work is that they cleave a glucosamine sulfate from heparin sulfate and in, in a reaction like this. And what happens is that without some F1, the growth uh, factors that often are secreted either, either extracellularly or intracellularly through autocrine pathways uh, stay, remain bound to the uh, cell surface and sustain signaling. And when you have some, F, uh, some, in this case, SOF1, you actually cleave off the heparin sulfate, you cleave off the, um, the, uh, the growth factor, and then you reduce signaling. So basically, we're saying that when you um, uh, lo lose some F1, you actually have enhanced signaling. And so to validate this, uh, Liz went in with two different CRISPRs, again, independent from the original ones in the library. Uh, she verified that when she treats the cells with these CRISPRs, that you lose the some F1 protein. So that's uh, shown in the middle here. And you and if you do if you clone out the CRISPR target site, you see frame shifts or insertions and stuff. So this explains why the protein disappears after treatment with with the CRISPR. And uh, and then she did just to verify what's going on in the cell. She did RNA seq analysis. And you can see that you have in strong enrichment for mitotic cell processes, uh, cell cycle, cell cycle, cell cycle. So the fact that these genes are um, exact have exaggerated expression with loss of some F1 basically explains why these cells now can grow in soft agar. They basically are hyped up for all the cell cycle features in in, in the cell. So this. Uh, is, so nobody has ever described SOMF1 as a tumor suppressor, but clearly it can function as a tumor suppressor. And so we're trying to understand how it functions in cancer. Curiously, there are not very many mutations in this gene in cancer cells, but it's downregulated. I don't know if that's in the next slide. No. Uh, it's downregulated, especially in triple negative breast cancer. And so we think it's actually silenced by DNA methylation. And uh, Liz is doing an experiment to, uh, to explore that. Uh, the enhancer is probably far away from the gene that we're, that we're dealing with. So that's the first uh, story I'll tell you. Um, the second story is another senior, uh, or thesis by Nadia Kumbal, who was interested in actually using CRISPR to study MYC regulation itself. Uh, so MYC is, as you can imagine, very tightly regulated. All the cells in your body that are not dividing turn off MYC, and all the cells that uh, are in your, in your body that want to divide have to turn on MYC. And if you eliminate MYC, as, as, uh, you, you basically can't divide. So a, a mouse that's null for the MYC gene is just never survives embryogenesis. And so the, re the level of regulation is, is very complex. You start at the cell membrane with, with, um, with uh, receptors that uh, are sending signals down to the nucleus. They turn on MYC. MYC itself can even autoregulate. Uh, you make more MYC RNA. And then you can also uh, have 
defects in MYC protein turnover. So all of these aspects of, of, of RNA regulation, of protein turnover, uh, RNA turnover are all very tightly controlled in the cell. And so um, Nadia wanted to ask the question, you know, how many different pathways are there that can regulate MYC? And to do that, she took advantage of, instead of CRISPR knockout, a CRISPR knock-in. So she created a targeting construct that had GFP uh, in frame with the MYC coding region with a small linker in between, and then had a, created a CRISPR binding site to create homologous recombination uh, ends, and then created this knock-in allele which has the rest of the MYC gene here, which I haven't put in. And then and the last part of the MYC protein is now fused in frame to EGFP. And this means that when we measure the amount of GFP in the cell, it's an indirect or actually fairly direct measure of the amount of MYC protein in the cell because these two are physically um, covalently uh, attached to each other. And, um, oops. Uh, you can, you can, she did this in two different cell lines. You, they're both colon cancer cell lines, and we chose them because they're diploid and grow well in culture. And so here you can see on the Western blot level that uh, here's the parental, this is DLD1, wild type cell, and here's the MYC level here. And then here is the fusion protein, the MYC EGFP, which runs a little bit higher in the gel because of the GFP domain. And then you actually see loss of a little bit of the endogenous gene. So you've basically converted one gene where it just makes the normal MYC protein into one that's making the fusion protein. And so the same is true with this HCT116 line. And you see basically the same pattern. You see the acquisition of this fusion protein. Um, and then if you put them in the cell sorter, these actually... This levels, because MYC protein turns over so quickly, the amount of EGFP is very low. It, it doesn't accumulate very much. But if you put it in the, the, the cell sorter, you can actually see this, this edge of, of, of fluorescence here that didn't exist in the parental line. And these are just controls where we just transiently overexpressed EGFP in the same cells. So she made the cell line, and now she wants to ask the question, what can she do with it? So the, the, the key experiment is now, again, to treat with a CRISPR knockout library. This is now going to inactivate randomly all of the genes in the genome and then sort for high levels of GFP, which is indirectly going to give us high levels of MYC. These high levels of MYC could come at any point in that, uh, uh, of that pathway. It could increase MYC RNA, it could MYC, uh, increase MYC or decrease MYC turnover, any of those facets would be scored by this, uh, by this uh, fusion protein. So uh, this is her raw data. So here's the, whoops. Um, uh, so here is, uh, here are the parental cells, a little bit of fluorescence. Uh, and then in the first library, she got a few hits in the, the, in the sorted population. And then the second time she did it, she got a lot more hits. So these are all uh, cells that were sorted. Once they're sorted for high GFP, they're still viable, so we can expand them in the culture dish and then rescue the CRISPR tags out of, of either one of these populations. 
And then you could put them through statistical analysis. You can ask the question, which CRISPRs are, are uh, statistically enriched in this particular population? And this is just a, a plot of all the, of all the hits. And then uh, here's the laundry list. Uh, again, you get what you screen for, whether you want it or not. And sometimes you don't even have any idea why you got these things, but these were all statistically significant. Some of them have transcriptional um, activity. Some of them are metabolic pathways, and we have to go through these one at a time now to be able to validate which ones might be real. But in looking at this list, she noticed one gene that had a prior association with Nick, and that became the focus of her thesis. And it's this gene that's uh, here that has the name NME1 or, or NME2. They're, they're related genes that I'll show you in a second. So what is the NME gene? NME stands for non-metastasis gene. So many years ago, somebody was screening for uh, uh, differentially regulated genes in cancer or metastatic cells versus non-metastatic cells, and they came up with this uh, NME gene. And basically, when that gene is expressed in cells, then the cells have reduced metastasis. That's why they call it non-metastatic. Uh, curiously, it's also an enzyme, uh, and the enzyme function of this is still kind of mysterious. It's a, a nucleoside diphosphate kinase. So basically, it takes a triphosphate, it pulls one of the phosphate groups on it as, a, as an addict to a histidine residue, and then it puts that same uh, phosphate group on another uh, nucleotide diphosphate created into a triphosphate. Nobody has to this day ever really figured out what that enzyme function is in cells. But, um, uh, but it definitely has decreased expression in metastatic breast cancer, and if you put this gene back in, the metastasis is suppressed. So it has uh, definite biological activity that is, is relevant to cancer. So enemy one and enemy two are by, right side by side, probably an ancient gene duplication on chromosome 17. And their amino acids in these two proteins are very, very uh, similar, but there are some, there is some divergence. And uh, so uh, again, with the power of CRISPR, we can now separate these two genes by simply targeting these non-conserved regions that, and, and so we can make a CRISPR that either knocks out um, uh, enemy one or enemy two and ask the question, is do these actually functionally score in our MYC uh, expression assay? So she did that. Uh, and, uh, and so the, the proteins run slightly different on a gel. Sometimes because they're antigenically similar, you can have an antibody that reacts with both proteins. But in this case, she's knocked out enemy one, so the upper band disappears. And in this case, she's knocked out enemy two, so the lower band disappears if you just use a pan-enemy um, antibody. And uh, as with her screen, sure enough, when she knocks out enemy two, you get higher levels of MYC RNA. So that's where the pathway is intersecting with this particular with this particular gene, whereas knocking out the related enemy one gene has no effect on MYC expression. We don't quite understand why those genes are, are behaving differently, but it's very clear from this genetic assay that enemy one and enemy two have different activities when it comes to 
uh, regulating NIC. Um, and uh, likewise, uh, if you now ask the question, what are the RNAs that are co-regulated with knockout of enemy one or enemy two? Here's just a simple example. So these are known target genes for MYC. So consistent with the fact that we have higher levels of MYC in the cell, we have higher levels of these two kind of uh, very canonical MYC target genes. And um, uh, this is just reiterating that, oh, I know. And if you take the knockout cells and you put enemy two back into them, MYC levels drop again. So we can basically reconstitute the pathway by, by knocking out enemy two genetically and then physically putting it back into cells, overexpressing it, and you reverse the phenotype of high levels of MYC expression. Um, uh, and that's the same. And then uh, she did RNA-seq analysis and looked for the, hot, the top hits in the, in the pathway. And here we have ribosome biogenesis, ribonucleotide cellular uh, biogenesis, et cetera. So these are completely consistent with all of the downstream effects of MYC in the cell. MYC is a master regulator of all the protein biosynthetic apparatus, and that's basically her top hit in this. And MYC is also a master regulator of half the metabolism in the cell, and that's also at the top of her list. So this RNA-seq analysis shows that by just knocking out enemy two, we can recapitulate a MYC phenotype partly by just turning on MYC. And what we're now interested in doing is we don't know how exactly, because this protein is kind of obscure in terms of its uh, uh, biological activity. It has some DNA binding activity. So uh, there are, there's actually some ChIP-seq data showing lots of places in the genome, but we haven't tried to overlap that with MYC promoter and MYC enhancers to see if, if enemy 2 is actually acting specifically through a, a, an enhancer that is uh, um, targeting MYC itself. And we, so, and then what we also want to do is expand the screen. So this is just one. We have all of those other candidates to truck through, and, but, and we also need to um, 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 just validate or, or, or test all of the other candidate genes we have in this. And so we, we think we're going to find yet other pathways that can impact directly on MYC expression. So, um, so now we'll get to the, 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 the real meat of the story and work that's not, most of which is not really published, or actually it was just published yesterday. Uh, so I've talked about indirectly about MYC uh, this whole talk, but, but, you know, and I've been thinking about this for 25 years at least. How can we target MYC itself? And people have tried and tried and tried, and this is just a short list of this. So you can uh, try to, uh, there's G, G quadruplexes that can turn off MYC expression. Uh, there are small molecules, protein-protein interaction inhibitors that have been uh, designed to try to inhibit MYC interaction with its, uh, some of its cofactors. And then indirectly, things like uh, general transcription inhibitors, like BET domain inhibitors, and um, uh, direct uh, uh, inhibitors of, of, tra of trans basal transcription factors all indirectly affect MYC expression. Um, 
and and how and the major place and this is just put into a cartoon format almost all of the work and there are four or five publications that stretch back at least 15 years if not 20 have been trying to to target one in interaction with Nick and that is it's known of and I'll come back to this in a second that Nick is an obligate heterodimer with a small protein called max and since this is a structure that I'll, that's known I'll share that in a second that's what most of the drug screens have been involved in. But, and then indirectly, you can target NIC by turning it off because it has enhancers near it by these general transcription inhibitors. But none of these have ever really been uh, made it to any kind of clinical therapeutic uh, uh, potential. So why uh, have people targeted the NIC transactivation, or sorry, the NIC DNA uh, binding domain? It's because this is the only part of NIC for which there's a known structure. So about 10 years ago or so, uh, the structure of the MIC-MAX heterodimer was determined. It's an extensive coiled-coil interaction, and that part of the protein binds to DNA. So um, it's, and it's known to be essential. So um, the good news is that, that it's a known structure. So if you could dock something in here that could inhibit this protein-protein interaction, you might have a, a functional drug. So the bad news is that um, there's a hundred other proteins and a hundred other transcription factors that have similar structures. So these domains are, are, are called leucine zipper, and there's like 50 different leucine zipper proteins in the cell, and the helix loop helix protein, there's about 50 different of those in the cell. So finding a drug that specifically interacts with this leucine zipper, helix, helix loop helix, and not hitting the other ones is, is, a, is a big challenge. So we like a different domain of Nick that I'll, I'll, I'll spend the rest of the time on. So besides this DNA binding domain here, there are these other little shaded regions that are called proverbially MIC boxes, meaning that these are the protein parts of the cell that are conserved both between three different NIC genes, there are three different differently regulated NIC genes in your body, and, uh, and they're also highly conserved in evolution, and so they've then acquired this, this term called MIC box. And what we're interested in is what's called MIC box 2 second homology domain in the protein. And what I'm showing you here is how amazingly conserved this small little motif is in evolution. So this is starting with human and mammalian NICs through um, insect NICs. All, all God's children have NIC, okay? And uh, this is down to sponge. So we have sponge MIC. And you can see that this core amino acid, DCMW, is invariant in all of evolution. And this is about, I think I looked it up, 750 million years without any deviation in this little, this little motif. And uh, I point out that my initials are in this box, <laughs> MDC. So I, I, I was just fated to, to study this. Anyway, uh, so, but, but what's interesting is that if you search the protein database, you do not find this motif in virtually any other protein, and it is never in that exact sequence of order 
And, and so, and, and there's no conserved motif that overlaps that. And yet here it is in Nick for 700 million years. That's got to be significant. So to test that, so number one, it's totally uh, uh, unique and it's different than the DNA binding. It is required, as I'll show you in a second, for all the uh, functions of NIC. And uh, that tryptophan is, is essential, as I'll show you that in a minute. And somebody in the, in the field once said, I mutated Mike Cole's tryptophan. And I was so proud because I own a tryptophan in NIC. <laughs> anyway, uh, so here's the biological data. We made this mutant, these, whoops, uh, about 20 years ago or so. Uh, whoops, ah, put in the wrong button. Uh, so here's my tryptophan mutants. And, uh, and uh, so as soon as you mutate that single residue in NIC, you lose all transforming activity in, in this, as well as making a larger deletion. Interestingly enough, if you just put a generic transactivation domain on NIC, it doesn't reconstitute its activity, which is kind of curious. I don't have much more to say about that. And then more recently, uh, John and Ed in the lab have done a whole alanine or and other scanning mutagenesis of the entire NICBOX2 region. And sure enough, every mutation, here's the D, two different alleles, here's the C, alanine, here's the M, mutated, and here's the, the tryptophan, every single one of these is defective in a, basically a cell transformation assay. Curiously, there are two, so here's the wild type activity. Here's a gain of function mutation that people have characterized, we, among others we did, uh, which actually makes MIC activity better. And, and so that actually scores in this assay. And then here's another mutation that we picked up from the TCGA database, which is a what we're convinced is a gain of function. And sure enough, it actually scores in this assay as a gain of function, and that's why it's a recurrent mutation in cancer, and we're studying that. Um, and, and in an in vivo assay, this is data from Linda Penn's group, uh, if you delete NICBOX2, in, in this case, it's um, mammary epithelial cells, basically you get no growth whatsoever in, a, in an in vivo tumor genesis assay. And, uh, so, and without MICBOX2, the animals survive, whereas their litter mates that have wild-type MIC um, all, are all dead within um, a few months. So what does MICBOX2 do? So Steve McMahon in my lab many years ago purified proteins that bind to MIC through MICBOX2. And he ended up with this protein, which we called TRAP, which is transactivation, transformation-associated protein. And we know that um, this uh, protein, TRAP, which I'll talk to you uh, uh, quite a bit about now, uh, is actually uh, binding directly to MIC, and it's MICBOX2-dependent, which is why we um, focused on it. And that's how we, we set up an assay specifically to find a protein that binds to wild-type NIC, but not through the NICBOX2, uh, with the NICBOX2 deletion. So what is TRAP? So TRAP, as I said back here, is actually the core of two very, very critical and evolutionarily conserved histone acetylation complexes. Probably acetylate other things, but uh, mainly histones are known. And so there's a, so TRAP is in both of these complexes, 
One of the of the histone acetylases in this is called GCN5. That basically acetylates H3 histones. And the other uh, complex uh, has TIP60 as its acetylase, and it, it acetylates H4. Uh, and the, as I said, the only shared subunit is this protein that we purified called TRAP. So what is TRAP? So TRAP is a, is a protein that's even more fundamental and, uh, and, and evolutionarily conserved uh, as MYC. It's a monster protein. It's 400 kilodaltons throughout evolution. So this is a kind of a functional comparison of the yeast uh, homolog of TRAP which is 3,500 amino acids, and the human trap, which we first purified, which is 3,800 amino acids. So, and this is the second largest protein in yeast. Uh, so that's really a monster. And, and it has in it a lot of different domains. It's officially part of the PI3 kinase family of all things. But in fact, we saw in the very first sequence, it has no kinase catalytic site. So it's basically a pseudokinase, but yet you can, if you do structural comparison, you can show an overlap between a bona fide PI3 kinase and TRAP, but it does not have kinase activity. And that's still a curiosity that needs uh, more exploration. So using cryo-EM, which is this amazing technique that we're just trying to um, use uh, in collaborations, the structure of the TRAP protein or the TRAP1 protein, the yeast homolog, has been numb. So here is the, 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 the gray parts are, uh, or sorry, the, the whatever color, amber parts, are, are these so-called heat repeats, which are soloid, solenoidal structures. So you see these little helices here that are, that are peppered all over the place. And then these other domains fold into a more complex structure uh, where the PI3 kinase-like domain is sitting at the top of this. A long time ago, well, many years ago, uh, a postdoc in my lab started mapping where does MIC bind in this. We can now superimpose that onto the, and we basically mapped it to basically the middle of the trap protein, which maps over here in this three-dimensional structure. So it's not binding to these more interesting domains, I'll call them, but it actually binds to this solenoidal region uh, clear on the other side of, of, the, of the MYC, or sorry, the trap protein. But we know that this region is, is critical uh, because when we mapped the key region of, uh, of, of, of trap binding to MYC, it actually mapped to a region that is not a heat repeat, but it's actually an intrinsically disordered region. And, uh, uh, and so in a rather heroic uh, experiment, John Hines made full-length trap and a trap protein that has only 55 amino acids deleted out of 3,800, and then asked the question, is this uh, uh, defective from big binding? And it is. So clearly we've, we've localized the key region of trap binding to MIC to a very, very small domain that maps to um, a particular piece of the, of the trap protein. And uh, it also, as, as we showed earlier, is MICBOX2 dependent. So if you remove MICBOX2 on the MIC side, you no longer get uh, binding. So now we have a, an assay. We wanted an assay that we could exploit to, to screen drugs. 
we figured, okay, we know that MIC binding to TRAP is essential, and we know the binding domains. So what can we do to actually think about targeting this domain, not the DNA binding domain, to look for drugs that might be effective against MIC? So uh, Ed uh, Ferris in the lab uh, got onto uh, a commercially available um, uh, protein interaction screen that's based on splitting luciferase. So one part of luciferase is put on to one protein, and it has no uh, luciferase activity. Another small piece of luciferase is on the other protein. And now if protein A and protein B, in this case, MIC and TRAP, interact, it brings the two luciferase domains together and then let there be light. And um, so Ed uh, set up this assay. So basically, you make your two fusion proteins, you put them directly into uh, cells and cultures, so you have an in vivo environment, more or less, uh, and then you have a reagent that you put in, and he uh, set this all up in a robotic assay. So to ask the question, do MIC and TRAP interact in this, in this, and can we minimize the domains that are involved? So this just shows you our, our, main, our main validation so here, is our, uh, here are our different fusion proteins. The small piece is actually on the MIC part. The large piece is on the TRAP part. And here's wild-type MIC. You get a certain luciferase activity. And now if you make this small 17-amino acid deletion of MICBOX2, the interaction is 90% missing. So this validates that, as far as we know, this uh, protein, th this the small domain interaction is recapitulating everything that we've seen in, in cells. And then on the trap side, if we delete that intrinsically disordered region, we also lose at least 50% of our activity. So basically we validated this, this kind of very artificial luciferase assay that's, that seems to reflect all of the domains that we're interested in in cells. Uh, and, uh, and also, we can look at our point mutations in the MCBOX2 region, and most of them also are, are recapitulated by this um, luciferase assay. And here's our gain-of-function mutation, which actually binds TRAP better. So we already think we know why that uh, mutation is selected for in human cancer. Uh, and uh, well, that's, that's shown here. All right. So Ed scrounged around and found out that the NCI will send you 3,000 molecules, 3,000 drugs and compounds and stuff for free. You just sign a little waiver and they send them out to you in dry ice. And so here's, our, here's the primary uh, uh, compounds. They send you just a small amount, but it's enough to do an assay. And then we were fortunate enough with, with Fred's help uh, to get a, a robot that the genomics core didn't, didn't use anymore. And Ed set this all up to screen 96 well plates for all of those 3,000 compounds and ask the question, do any of them disrupt that luciferase activity that we showed you? So here's the workflow, uh, about 3,000 compounds. Some of them are approved oncology drugs, some are complicated natural products, and some of them are somewhat drug-like. And uh, so he could do um, uh, replicates, um, and ask the question, are, are any of these um, uh, score in this assay? 
And then the important counter screen is to use each of those drugs to see if they just disrupt luciferase itself. If it just interacted or disrupted the, the luminescence, then that's a, that's a false positive. And so eliminated a lot of those. And so here's his laundry list. Uh, most of them eliminate uh, 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 the luciferase by about 50%. That was kind of our first pass cutoff. So after all of these uh, uh, selections, he has about 17 um, compounds. So I think that's good because out of 3,000, uh, only 17 hit. So by, you know, thousands of these things do not score in our assay. So it's clearly measuring something somewhat specific. And now he's been working on uh, asking which of these are, are interesting. Our CHAMP, I'll call it, is compound number 10 out of his list. Um, and it scores for blocking MIC co-IP with TRAP in vivo in just a few hour assay. And it also can disrupt MIC binding to TRAP when the complex is fixed on beads. If we take those beads and soak them with this compound, you basically eliminate uh, at least 50% of the binding. Now, these are still relatively high concentrations in the, in the micromolar range, but it's just the first approximation. So this is where we think this screen is going. And, um, and, but we're very happy to um, have um, a primary hit that seems relatively specific. And so what we need to do from this point forward is to continue to screen drugs. Um, we're looking for broader libraries and collaborations that could help us uh, expand this. We want to determine the time course and the concentration dependence of our, of our key compounds to see how, how they fare against other things. And we also want to make sure that they're specific to the MIC-TRAP interaction and, for example, don't disrupt MIC-MAX, which we don't think so because we're screening a different domain. And then we'd like to figure out what is the molecular mechanism of these compounds and what protein is it actually targeting? Does it bind directly to MIC? Does it bind directly to TRAP or, or how does it work? So that's basically um, all I have to say. We've come a long way from just studying biological mechanisms of MIC activity uh, and, and all the work uh, has been done by, by this group. Uh, I didn't have a time to talk about John's stuff because a lot of it's work in progress, but but he's contributed to, to some of, uh, of, of Ed's uh, stuff as well. And then shared resources that are very helpful. Alan Eastman tells us a lot about drugs and how, and how not to use them. And, uh, and then our funding is from NCI and, and, and money from the Cancer Center for Equipment and also a, a priority grant which got this project going. So uh, that will take further questions. Great talk. Um, <clears throat> I'm a lymphoma physician. Um, I have two questions, actually. One is, um, when you um, mutate MIC versus TRAP, um, when you mutated TRAP, it seems like you're only to, able to decrease um, you know, um, its effectiveness by 50%, but MIC, like if you took out the MIC box 2, it went you know, really, really down. Yeah. Um, why 
do you think that is? The similar thing is happening when you um, are using your drug compound 10, you only getting kind of like a 50% reduction. Yeah. So I mean, cool. we're happy with 50% yeah. <laughs> at the moment. But uh, so I think the answer to your first question is that the, the domain of trap is, is bigger than just that little tiny IDR. It, it definitely extends further out into the protein. And so that's still in some of those constructs. So it, it doesn't completely kill the interaction. Whereas on the mix side, it is completely dependent on mixbox too. And we'd lose 90% of the activity. And uh, so I, I, I don't know exactly where that all falls out, but you know, trap is big and we still are using a, a centerpiece of the trap protein. We can't just use the IDR. My uh, second question is, um, what happens when you use like a chromolytic like a percolate cell line? We haven't done that, but uh, there's we, a lot of percolate lines out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, would this be effective? Yeah, that's our. That will be our first line, is is to do percolate lymphoma. Yeah, yeah. But there's a there's a in is an in vitro uh, kind of model for that, and it's a cell line that has an inducible mix. And it basically behaves like a Burkitt's lymphoma. So we, we have that in the lab. We, we've tested. We have not done biological assays with these compounds yet. That's on its list. Yeah. Following up on that, um, in terms of compound 10, what, what does the NCI say about that compound? How they, where it came from? It's, it's, um, it's in the literature. Uh, it's actually billed as a reverse transcriptase inhibitor. For what it's worth, uh, I think that we're screening it for a totally independent assay. So whatever they say has nothing, no particular bearing on what we're we're dealing with, and we're using it just to target a specific chemical or molecular structure, and it's working. And so we're just hoping that that's just proof in principle why our, work, our screen works and where we can go with there from there. So. What? So you know its structure, but don't tell us. No, we have not. Ed was never able to get the crystal structure of the mic trap interaction. Oh, not the mic trap of, of the individual proteins. You showed us trap. I don't. That's not. Oh, that. Oh, well. Isn't it funny that the IDR is not in that structure? It basically goes from this loop to that loop, and then there's nothing in between in the structure because it's an intrinsically disordered region, as we predict, and therefore it doesn't show up in that cryo-EM structure because it's not done. So what we're hoping to do, and this is on the plan for, for John and Ed, is to, is to co-purify MIC with TRAP. You know, we kept trying to work with the minimal domain, but now, given cryo-EM, the bigger the better. And so I think that we can, we can purify TRAP and then co-purify with NIC, and that, our prediction is, will fix the structure of both domains in a cryo-EM structure that doesn't exist with just TRAP alone. What I was actually getting at was, um, you know the structure, so you can modify it. Didn't suggest putting hydroxyls on here and taking them off there and doing it. That would be helpful. Yeah. Uh, we we've, we've got the number of inhibitors and you've got the potential fragment yeah. uh, libraries. Yeah. Yeah. 
seems like you may have a lot more in the chemistry room just screening. Yeah, we've, we've talked to Glenn. He likes our compound 10, that he thinks he could make modifications to it. But if you just look at the chemical literature space, uh, there's lots of compounds that have bits and pieces of it that we, if we could find the money to buy these compounds, we could actually just counter screen each of them in the same assay and probably narrow down which parts of this compound 10 and maybe find a better one. But that's where we need more compounds. Go ahead. Is there any, I remember when we talked before, this is kind of crazy, but in the compound collection that you got from the NCI, is there a way to search to see if there are family members of any of the leads that you have to see whether or not you get a glimpse of any structure activity relationship, what blocks activity is? Ed says yes. So are there any in the collection that provide a glimpse? I have a lot of them. I'll do a more thorough and the second one is, how do you do, do you know what the purity of that sample is? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Scott, Scott uh, Gerber just did uh, uh, NMR or mass spec on it, and it's dirty. Uh, so, you know, I, I, you know, but, but with... But within the mass spec is the, a structure that is the, of what they sent, said they sent us, but there's other impurities in it. That... Then how easy is it to resynthesize? It's really easy to come on some sort of... go? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm just We, uh, the NCI panel that we have actually comes with what are called GI50 values. So we know, based on their assay, how much of this compound can inhibit the growth of a whole panel of cell lines. Uh, we haven't tried to correlate that with our biological assays at this point in time, but we, we can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ed, I think that you disclosed this IP. Well, actually, what happened is Barry's gotten into a lot of discussions with Steve, and Steve mentioned that um, we were working on these kind of mixed drugs, and so Steve said, why don't you talk to Barry, and Barry came up and talked to us. And, yeah. Licensing director for transfer. Your new investment. Right. Yeah. And so and so when we met with Barry, Barry said you looks it looks good. I think I think it's the only thing I would say is that uh, if you have an idea or you have some some discovery you think is cool, let me know as quickly as you can. Most of these compound libraries at this point have been subjected to RNA seq or at least microarray studies. Do you see a signature with that? We haven't had time to do that. It's just Ed <laughs> at this point in time, and John with some help, but he's doing all the compound work. Yeah, we could do that, but we just, we haven't done it.
Yeah. Okay. Huh? Thank you.